Father, we do thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We ask that you once again bless it, um, our study of your scripture, of what you've done in your people from the beginning and how all of these types and shadows point to Jesus and what you're doing in us through him by your spirit. We pray that we're not just informed but moved and moved to action. That we love Christ more and that because of our zeal for him we strive to look like him and act like him to be holy as he is holy. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are continuing on Exodus 29, Exodus 29, 38 through 46. And we've just gone through, completed, wrapped up the, um, the ordination of the priest's ritual. It was a lengthy discussion on clothing and rites and all kinds of things. And, and, and really the lens on this passage widens in scope from the ordination of the priest to the daily practice um, of, the, of the burnt offering. So let's look in verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth sia of fine flour mingled with a fourth of, hen, of a hen of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you, to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be there to know that I am Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am Lord their God. Kevin, yes. This reminds me of communion. Yes. It does. Um, it also should remind you of something else and we'll get to that here in a little bit. Um, look at uh, l- Look at this picture that we have here. We've gone through what the temple is made of, the tabernacle is made of, all of the, uh, the fabrics and the furniture and all of that. And then we went through the, the priesthood and the development of that, what it's supposed to look like, what are they supposed to do in, in principle. We'll get more detail when we get to Leviticus. And then now we have the institution of this daily sacrifice, one in the morning, one in the evening, of two lambs every day. Every day. There's not a Sabbath rest for the sacrifice. Every day. That's a lot of sacrifices through the years. And they're on a lunar calendar. It's 360 days, right, in the lunar calendar? Two a day, 
720, that took me a while. 720, 720 lambs a year. What? 730. 365 or 60 in a lunar calendar. Oh, sorry. Are you, are you challenging me, Grant? I just, just can't. <laughs> Yes, if we're 365, you would be right. There's a leap lunar or something. I don't know. But um, catch us up. You have that many a year. How many years did they do this? Well, let's see. The tabernacle was until the time of David. From Moses, 1500 to David, was when, about 1,000? I think it's time, if I remember my. So 500 years there. And then another, till, I think they were hauled off to Babylon in 700. 700 years, and then they came back. So you've got a lot of time, a lot of years, a lot of lambs, a lot of blood. And every day, this ritual happens. Every day. Um, it's referenced in the New Testament quite a bit. You, you, you know the, the story of the, um, the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector that, that Jesus talks about. And, says, and they go up to pray. Well, what he's talking about is this ritual. They go up in the morning to pray. They're going to the temple to see this ritual happen. It's a daily thing, every day. This is what's going on. We're given a command here for what is to become the heart of Israelite worship. This is the core of their sacrificial system. Day by day, regularly. That, that phrase means continuously. It goes on without interruption. As we said, is one in the morning, one in the evening. This is a big deal. It seems very simple. Just a couple of lambs every day, but this is a big deal. Yeah? What do, they, do, they, do they eat the lamb? Like, is it just a... I think this is a burnt offering. With it? Is it a burnt offering? It is a burnt offering. Well, that's, that's to, to God. Okay. Yeah, it's I, a burnt I guess offering. my question is in the vein of, is it... Is it uh, um, does God purpose the offering just as an offering, or is it like an offering and food, food for the people? Well, like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like burn it, throw it away. Yeah, it's burn it, throw it away, I think. It's a burnt offering. Um, that, that is a, usually, uh, at least my understanding, burnt offering is a completely consumed offering. So, every day, two lambs. In Numbers uh, 28 and 29, um, Moses catalogs all the different sacrifices. This is the very first one listed. It's, it's shown to be the core, the, the important ritual in Israelite worship. It's a big deal. Ephah and hen. Here in ESV it says a measure of, but the, the, the Hebrew word there is ephah, and you'll see sometimes translations will say a, an ephah of flour, a hen of oil, those kinds of things. Ephah is the basic measurement for of weight, volume, that kind of thing. And then a hen would be the weight, the basic measurement would be like a, a, a liter, you know, how we, how we measure liquid. That's their, the terminology for that. We're not really sure what the sizes are there. Some estimate, you'll see some notes in your Bibles about the, the measurements there, but soothing aroma. These food, it's a soothing aroma. Have we seen that before? What is that in reference to? To what is that in reference Okay. What what was in, what was implied there with the, it'll be a soothing aroma to the Lord? Does, the, God likes barbecue. It's the obedience. The obedience. 
leads to acceptance for them, right? It's a soothing aroma. That's how they viewed it. That's how the language was given. Um, it's the acceptance of the offering. They had done it rightly. Where are these sacrifices to take place? There's a common place on the altar. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about it last week. Right. So it's not in the holy place or the most holy place. Right. It's out in the outer court. And where specifically does it say in this passage that it would take place? Kind of, where, It kind of gives you an idea of where the positioning of the altar is, too. The entrance of the tent. In fact, the way that the, the altar, the size of the altar took up, I mean, it's a very prominent position in that outer court, right in front of the entrance. There was not a whole lot of room to get around to get to the... It's very prominent. At the entrance of the tent, why is that significant? This daily, continuously burnt offering, Everybody's morning and night. See it. Everybody's going to be reminded morning and night. You're... Um you're clean before you walk into the tent? Yeah, yeah, this is an atonement deal. I mean, you have to be clean before you walk into the tent. You have to be clean to walk into the outer court to be... Uh, an atonement has to be made for the people, for, the, for every day this is going on. This is where the altar was, the outer court. And what's the significance of this offering again? That it's in the front, it's, in the, it's in the, at the entrance. What does God say will happen there? He'll meet with them. Literally, it means to meet at an appointed place. And later we're going to see that this is the place where God's glory appears at the, at the uh, inauguration of the tabernacle, at the inauguration temple with Solomon. That God's glory appears at the meeting, at the entrance place where this sacrifice is going on. Are any of these things or people that are referenced here in, in uh, verses 42 through 44, are they holy? We talked about this a little bit last week. In and of themselves? Yes. No. no. What is it about this passage that tells you that? What is he saying? I will sanctify them. By what? His glory. Now, what does that mean? They've already gone through the the, sa- the sacrifices for the al- to purify the altar, the sacrifice for the priest. To, to, yes. That, and, that, was, that that was a sign of their obedience, but yet it's ultimately God who makes them holy. What is it that makes them holy? And by what means does he do that? What does it say? Yes, but in the text, what does it say? By his glory. By his glory. Now, what does that mean? He makes them holy by his glory. First of all, what does glory mean? Radiance or essence of? Radiance or essence of? Say it again. Just being there, God is making them holy. Just being there, God is making them holy. What makes him holy? What makes these things and this, these people holy? His presence. We have BO that kind of emanates from us. God has Yeah, no. <laughs> Line over here, not helpful. I will grant you. Yeah, there's a breath that's taken before words are uttered, and you didn't take that breath. 
That no. His glory is often associated with the presence of God. It's almost a one-to-one relationship in Scripture. Presence of God, glory of God, same thing. And it's His presence that makes it holy. He, by being there, remove your sandals, this is holy ground. Well, it's a desert ground. How is it holy? I'm here. My presence is here. Yes? How would you define glory? And I asked this question... I remember sitting in a Bible study at Pine Cove, and that same question was asked when I was like 17. And obviously, that word is used throughout Scripture, yeah. and we're all like stabbing at it, and none can really like what is glory. Like, so how would you? It, it literally it means heaviness, weightiness. Um, Do you think we have a hard time with that word because in our culture and in this day and age, there are not very many glorious things. There are not very many glorious people. I mean, <laughs> I, I guess in, in the past, there were some great kings yeah. who had glory in an earthly manner mm-hmm. that you could then kind of see, okay, that's a shadow mm-hmm. of, of God's glory. But in this day and age, I don't, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I have a hard time with that word because I look around at people and there aren't very many people who I think have a glory or honor in, in an earthly mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's the association I, with I what we what we prize versus what they... It's like, you know, professional athletes, they seek their own glory. You know, the look at me, I did this. They're seeking the big contract because they're seeking their own... <clears throat> their own name. Glory. Elevated, uh, yeah. Uh, and, and I think, too, if we key off of that, there is a desire of those around them to be where they are for the autograph, for the, for the selfie. You know, all, all of that is because of their accomplishments, who they are, the money deal they just cut, what they think of themselves, what they think of themselves how they present themselves, their likability, whatever. People want to be where they are. That's why you have an entourage around all of those kinds of people. It, it's a desire to be there. Well, the weightiness of God's glory, and it has a couple of effects, doesn't it? Uh, for those who love Him, we'll see in chapter 31, 32, uh, maybe 33, anyway, early 30s, Moses says, show me your glory. He wants to see God's glory fully. Put me through it. I want to see it. God says, no, I'll kill you. Um, and yet, for his glory that was shown on the mountain, what was the response of the people? They, were they, ran. they ran. They're looking over their shoulders at the glory of God. They're running for you know, miles away. They're getting away from the mountain. So, the glory of God, while beautiful, while desirable, while heavy, it is sort of undefinable. Because the reaction to it is different. It's not like our understanding of famous people who are attractive. There's a sense of, uh, an overwhelming sense of awe that we see in Scripture for those who have seen God's glory. Um, No man can see God's face, for in the day you see it, you'll die. Um, But we have seen 
how's John say it? We've seen him. We've seen Christ um, who lived among us. There is a, there, there is a, a, a constant refrain of God's glory making things holy. The altar, the ark, the lampstand, the priest, all of it must be consecrated. And that flows out from God himself. They are set apart by my glory, it says. The glory of God is associated with the weight of his presence. Look at 45 and 46. What is the primary purpose? I'll just say it this way. What is the purpose given of the tabernacle and its services? What's the purpose that's given? 45 and 46. It says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. What's, what's the purpose given for all of this stuff we've been going through on the building of the tabernacle, the consecration of the priests, and now here with this core uh, ritual of sacrifice, this daily ritual, what is the purpose? Yeah. So, as the two points there, one overshadows the other. So, the, the smaller one I see is God dwelling with them. Okay. The larger one I see is so that they know that He is who He is. Okay. That he is their God. And so, He dwells with them, and it's a reminder. Okay. So he's he will be he will dwell, and that they may know he is their God. Anything else? Yeah. Just speaking of what you've done over the last several months, that he would that he dwells with his people, but there's a um, but there is a spot and an order mm. in which you are to approach. Because the tent, I mean, to me, to, the tent represents. One spot, and then there's instructions on hmm. how to how to approach. Right, how to it's very it. by his means that he's dictated. This is how you come to me. Right. It's not like he's off behind that tree over there, and you can come up to him however you want to. Yeah. Yeah. There's also an element of sanctification in here for the people. Okay. So in order for them to know that he is their God. Right. The very effect of that, the next step is for them to become more like him. If they know it and, and see it, then they will become like it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Is this something to remind them? It says, he's the one that brought them out of the land. Yep. Yep. So we have four things that I see, and, and you have all gone to. Uh, first, that God will dwell among the people. What do we call that? There's a, there's a, a, a term that we use in... Well, eminence, okay. Um, it's called the Emmanuel Principle. It's a nice thing to start thinking about as we run into uh, Christmas. The Emmanuel Principle. God will dwell with His people. I will be with my people. Emmanuel. Um, second, I will be their God. That's a central concept of the covenantal relationship. I will be their God. They will be my people. We saw it early on in Exodus in, in chapter 6, verse 7. He is giving himself to the covenant relationship. He didn't have to do it. But he's giving himself in the covenantal relationship. I will be their God. Notice it's very specific. Their God. Third, there's the concept of knowing. I think that's a great, a great one to think about too. We saw that again all throughout Exodus as we've gone through this. Whether it's Pharaoh or the Israelites, that they may know that I am the Lord their God, or that I am the Lord. God will be known. Fourth, God is the one who brought them out 
from Egypt? What's the purpose? Why did he bring them out? There is people. What else? So that they may know that he is God. So they may know that he is God. He brings them out so they know. And then what? Dwell with them. Making himself known and being present with his people. That's the takeaway. That's why this is going on. That he might dwell among them. Why did he bring you out? You know, uh, whether you have a horror story or not. Um, <laughs> That's interesting. So it wasn't necessarily he brought you out. for their, their relinquishing them of slavery. It mm. was bringing them out so he can be with them. Yeah. Because he couldn't be with them. Even, even better, he wouldn't be with them in the midst of a pagan, sinful nation. But he pulls them out to make them his own holy nation. What other religion is like this? What other God does this? That he takes his enemies, calls some of them out, creates in them a heart to love him, to serve him, to be holy like he is, so that he might reflect himself back to the world, to his creation. What? That he might dwell among them. Christ saved you out of the slavery of your rebellion against your Creator. Why did he bring you out? That you may know him, that he might dwell with you. Individually and corporately. By yourselves and all of us together. That he might be known by you and might dwell with you. That has radical implications, doesn't it? Why is that important? Notice how it ends. It ends with, I am the Lord their God. It's like a divine signature. For all that has gone on before, all the stuff with the tabernacle, all the stuff with the priesthood, now this ritual that's this core of Israelite worship, I am the Lord their God, that's his signature. It's like a you know, thing. Trademark it. I'm the Lord their God. Why is it important for him to end on that note? All that I've said, all that I've said is going to happen. I brought you out of Egypt. All that I've said was going to happen has happened. I'm the Lord your God. Why is that important? Part of it is to get them to obey. Okay. And what's the basis of their obedience? Is what he's demonstrated. He's done his part. Now do yours. Okay. I think it, it sort of has the idea of this all rests on me. This is my signature. I've said it. I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. There is no doubt. Trust it's me. It's not up to you. <laughs> Trust me. I mean, isn't that... All of that being said, the result of that is here's your part. Trust me. Right? Again and again and again. Now, why would he need to do that? <laughs> yeah, we've been going through Exodus. That's right. So we have these commands. 
given for the tabernacle. And, I, and, I, and we've brought this out a little bit. I want to bring this out again. There are three aspects to this. We saw in the tabernacle, the building of it. There, there's all these purple fabrics and on the inner stuff, all this beautiful, ornate stuff. Very royal in its appearance. We made the comment that it was a, a kingly palace. Although it was portable, it was a portable palace for a king, right? God sits on the throne of the Ark of the Covenant at the mercy seat, puts his feet there, his presence there. It's a kingly royal tent. Then we went into the priesthood. It's also a holy tent built for holy men to do holy service before a holy God. Yes? It's a royal tent. It's a holy tent. And now we see in this one, it's a tent of meeting. A royal tent, a holy tent, a tent of meeting. Not a God who stands off, stands away, holds off into this little inner sanction waiting to be served. He's, he's, he's a meeting them. I will speak with you there. Well, I've got to go to Jesus on this. I mean, I have to. Christ our King. From the time of his birth, the, the Magi coming, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. To the time of his death, and Pilate asked him, Are you the King of the Jews? And he answered them, You have said so. They mocked him on the cross, calling him the King of Israel. Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. To the time of his resurrection, Revelation 1.5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Well, who is the ruler of the kings on earth but the king of kings, right? Royal. And he raised him up, seated him in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named. He's a king. Christ is holy, blameless, undefiled. 1 Peter 1, 18, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ our Emmanuel, our, our tabernacle. Uh, Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and be their God. They will be His people. No tabernacle, no temple, a person. A little more portable, a person. Not one specific place, but a specific person. And that's always been the plan. Therefore the Lord himself, Isaiah says in chapter 7, will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Again, repeated by the angel in Matthew 1.23. Emmanuel, God with us. All of this is instituted by means of an atonement. There's an old story of a rabbi's son who asked the rabbi, uh, what is it 
that makes atonement for the soul. And the rabbi, being a good Jew, said blood. It's because of the blood. And he goes to Leviticus 17, 11, where it says, you know, that the Without the blood, there's no remission of sin. The blood is the life and all that. He quotes that for the boy. And the boy responded by asking, then why are there no blood sacrifices in our synagogues? And the rabbi sadly answered that there, no legitimate sacrifice could be held anywhere but in Israel, in the temple, at the altar. And sadly, that temple has been destroyed. The longest just got back from Israel. They went to the Wailing Wall. They're still longing for a temple. And the boy responded, we have no atonement. Think of the weight of that statement. The place where he comes to meet with them is gone. We have no atonement. And that's true. Unless you are in Christ. Think of the amount spilled. We talked about this earlier. Think of the amount of blood that was spilled those centuries after centuries, day after day after day. All that blood, not just on those daily sacrifices, but the Day of the Atonement, when they were slaughtering, slaughtering tons of bulls, tons of goats, tons of sheep. The, the, the consecration of the temple with Solomon, thousands of bulls, thousands, countless. You know, Think of all that blood and yet they still had to keep doing it day after day after day. It never satisfied the righteous wrath of a holy God. Christ did it in three hours on the cross. Quantity versus quality. Infinite value. Doesn't that just magnify the worth of Jesus? What do we do? How do we reverence Christ as our royal king? If he's the king, how do we respond? How do we reverence him as a royal king? He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest, make myself known, be present to Make, uh, manifest myself to Him. Do we strive to live in holiness knowing that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 2.21 In Him you also are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Therefore, Paul asks this question. If you're a temple, what agreement has the temple of God with idols. For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty." How do we live holy? Are we striving to be holy? Does that mean something? We're talking about glory, what's the definition of glory? What's the meaning of holiness? How are we striving toward that? 
It's a tent of meeting. Christ is a tent of meeting. Do we have a longing to meet with Him? The author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for Him. Not eagerly awaiting for a time when I won't be sick anymore. Although that's promised. Not eagerly awaiting a time when I won't feel inferior. Although that's promised. Uh, not eagerly awaiting for a time when I don't have to fear death. Although that's promised. Eagerly waiting for Him. Um, someone asked the question, would it be heaven without Jesus? Well, would it be heaven with Jesus and I don't have this thing that I've accomplished in this life? Would it be heaven with Jesus even though I didn't get married before I died? Would it be heaven with Jesus even though I reached a million dollars in gross income? Which really means that you'll be paying a ton in taxes anyway, so what's the point? Um, would it be heaven with Jesus even though I didn't get the nice house, 2.5 kids, awesome car, you know, American dream stuff. Are you eagerly waiting for Him? He's the temple. He's the place of meeting. He's the Holy One. He's the King. Are we loving Him that way? Any comments, any questions? Yes, ma'am. Can I draw, draw Sure. Watching them walk towards their wedding in the last couple of weeks and seeing that anticipation of being with each other for the remainder of their lives, I thought, wow, that is how I want to anticipate the coming of Christ. And I've never paused to really look beyond this life mm. in that way to really anticipate with so much eagerness but patience that Christ is coming back for me yeah. for us. Yeah. Eagerly waiting. Um, I, I got an opportunity to talk with someone this week about teaching, kind of what, how, how it's done, and, and to the extent that I do it halfway decent. This is kind of my goal. There's a, there's a, a going through the passage, seeing what's there, breaking down the parts, seeing the, the, the ingredients, the, the, like today, we talked about the sacrifice, the meaning of those sacrifices. But there's also a part of this where if it stays here, it's pointless. It's party favors. It's something to drop a line while you're going to get punched at the bowl. It's got to move to the heart. You see this again and again in the Psalms where he trades on the theology and then he goes into it moves the heart. Theology, then it moves the heart. And then from that, there's a call to, I've got to live differently because of what I know. There's a knowledge and then there's a knowing. Is there, you understand the difference? I mean, God knew about the Babylonians. He knew about the Egyptians, but He knew Israel. Right? There's a difference. That if we, we could talk about Adam knowing his wife and that knowledge, there's an intimate knowing, knowing there. There's a difference. Um, so, 
there, there's, there's that head knowledge thing, there's the heart thing, and that's the part that's the, often the disconnect, I think. We can have some great understanding of how the rituals worked out, how everything, but if it's not moving us, the solution to that, because a lot of times I'm not moved by things. I get stuck in a rut, and I get... The solution to that is what the psalmist does, incline my heart to love your law. It's a prayer. It's a cry. It's a plea to God, move my heart. Dwell in me here and make it mean something to me. I'm calloused. I'm hardened. I need to eagerly wait for Him. Not for the benefits, although they're promised. Eagerly wait for Him and then act like you believe it. Right? Anytime you come to the Bible, that's what you're hitting. What does it say? What should I feel from this? How, how, should I, how is he redeeming my emotions here? And what is it, what do, how do I respond with that? Seeing these kinds of things, this king, holy, meeting, that should move us. What God does this for his people? What, who does this? To forgive his enemies and then create a place to meet with them, a person in, in his own person coming to them, to meet with them. A God that does that. Who dies, who sheds blood for the, for the purpose of dwelling with his people. Who does that? Anyway. Any, anything else? Kind of tag on to what you and Barbara were saying. Um, there's also, you need to be active in that way. Eager and patient, but actively obedient mm-hmm. to him. He equates love with obedience to what he said. Mm-hmm. That part of the loving is ob- now. You think about in terms of, and I know this is. We always use wedding and marriage because Bible uses it, but it, single life has this too. <laughs> that you serve one another. Um, it, if I know that uh, Tammy really hates to go to bed with the dishes on the counter, which is theoretical. Um, it drives her insane to go to bed with any kind of dish, even though she's cooked, and it, what comes out of the chaos is an amazing dish, but it remains. And then she says, ah, oh, she can't go. The, out of love, <laughs> if I'm going to serve her, I get Emma to clean that up. <laughs> That is a love, that's a thing of love. It's the, no, it's not the same way. Anyway. Yes. But, but there's an obedience to the command. There's an obedience to out of love for who Jesus is and what he's done. That, uh, that, that should flow from understanding who he is, knowing him, and loving him, and eagerly waiting for him. Very good. That's right. Very good. We should talk more. That's very good. In singleness, there's a there's a unique relationship that's not in marriage that makes it more important for single people to reach out to other single people to help get the need from it. When you're down, I'm up, back and forth. Mm -hmm. In a marriage relationship, that's natural. You know who that person is. When you're single, 
other than your parents or mm. brother or sister, mm -hmm. well, what if you're not around, don't live around mm. anymore? It's more important to be plugged into a group like this mm. to have that relationship with each other. And there is a, and there is a, a drive toward, in the, in the New Testament, for openness and living open in front of each other. And you do that in wisdom. There's some discernment there. But, but, that, but that, you, um, that you bear one another's burdens in love. Um, yeah, there, there's, there's a big call for that in the New Testament. It's a kind of a, a, a stamp of what is Christian community. Um, good. And how Paul loved Timothy and other people. Right. 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 Excellent. Okay. Any anything else? I got to we got to wrap it up, I guess. Nuts. Father, we thank you again for the grace that you've shown to us through Christ. And that you have committed yourself to dwell with creatures. With creatures who are at one time hostile to you, but you in the day of your power have made willing to love you, to serve you, to honor you the best that we know how. And we thank you that by your Spirit that effort should be getting better. Forgive us, Father, for calloused hearts, for hearts that wander, for hearts that eagerly await other things than His return. Everything after Christ is gravy. and Sometimes we spend more time on the gravy than we do Him. God, forgive us for our idolatry in our hearts. Discipline us so that we love Jesus with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Knowing that one day we will see Him as He is and we will be made like Him. Reflecting Him rightly as we were created to do. We thank you for this promise and this hope. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.